Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, it's Annie and... Kim, good morning. Yeah, Solidarity Breakfast for you on 3CR. You can get us live if you're awake right now. And you probably are because it was, it's been so, so hot. hot. <laughs> it's, already, it's already over 22 degrees. Yeah, that's right. Flushed out the house, but it's still tepid and and uh, and sort of cl- uh, clammy and, and grimy. But you know, forty one. It's coming on to forty one, and we'll have a bit, few messages from the uh, ambulance people about how you and the Red Cross about how you can help yourself and others uh, keep keep alive in this uh, incredible level of heat that we're experiencing in Melbourne at the moment. Apparently, there's going to be a cool change later on the weekend. That's what. The, the forecast. So look forward to that. Yeah, but you've got really, you're at the pointy end, aren't you? You're actually moving house. Yes, I have absolutely no choice and I'm probably contravening all the advice I'm going to give you later from the Red Cross. <laughs> That's right. Well, what are we going to talk about today? We've got someone from uh, London who has returned to the Labor Party fold in uh, England and he's going to give us an update on uh, what's going on in Corbyn land. Apparently Corbyn's uh, supporters are now being Corbyn, called Corbynistas. Oh, I thought they were Corbynites. Well, there's two. There's, there's Corbynites two. and Corbynistas. Is there a difference? What's the difference? I don't know. It depends on which The Corbynistas rag. are cooler. Yeah, yeah, it's right. It also probably depends on which rag is trying to uh, turn the knife on the man. And uh, anyway, uh, Rod Quinn, who is an expatriate uh, Australian, who uh, used to uh, be uh, work... Uh, uh, teaching OHS, etc., etc., but uh, went over to England, lives there now, and uh, taught the same stuff at uh, the uh, London School of Economics. That's, that was see, OHS is an is an Australian export. We're, oh. we're actually uh, we were leaders in the uh, high sophisticated art of balanced OHS before uh, they decided we needed to go back into the dark ages again. There you go. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about in the first part of the program. Later on, we're going to talk housing. Yeah, I've got some opinions on that. (laughs) That's right. And later on, we're going to uh, have the wonderful, wonderful Noah is going to do a um, roundup of the year. And uh, that's great. So let's go straight on to Rod because we've got uh, a big program and uh, we don't have a lot of time. 
Well, we've. Uh, I thought it was a good time to get back to you about uh, what's going on with uh, Jer- Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labor Party since the uh, vote for or against going into uh, Syria with uh, English bombers uh, appears to have uh, really shown the uh, two sides of the Labor Party. Would that be true? Yeah, what's occurring, of course, is that, is that um, there is a digging... They, <laughs> the ex-Blairites are well digging in. They're, uh, they're obviously unforgiving. They're obviously going to keep attacking with the aid of the media and all the rest of it. Um, but what's happening is that the so-called Corbynites, or Corbynistas, or whatever we wish to call them, are digging into. They've, they've obviously got a very powerful and popular position within the Labour Party, and outside it as well. The recent by-election showed that. It, it really did demonstrate that they are on a, um, a winning side, in the sense that they, if there were to be an election soon, uh, if the Labour Party were to lose it, it would not be losing it because of Jeremy Corbyn or the left. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the way the uh, media in your on your side of the world talks about uh, Corbyn and the way we see it from the mainstream are all these uh, horrible pictures of him looking like an idiot and... Uh, Silly, silly sort of jibes about uh, him being uh, not uh, following proper form when we're really talking about going to war and uh, firing lots of people and destroying the national health system. These don't seem to get a Guernsey. The important issues don't seem to be getting a Guernsey in the media. No, that's right. No, that's right. And they are the issues that are are really standing behind his supporters. But if you see their work in Parliament, it's it's certainly following... Uh, in some ways, it's following traditional social democratic lines. It's a very traditional... There's nothing new about the so-called Corbynistas. That, um, that sort of support for a Labour, a Labour government, a so-called left-wing Labour government, has always been there. Always been there, and always, always attracted a vote, a varying vote, according to what's going on in the economy, in the economy and so on. But they're an enormously popular lot. What's happened is the group called, a very loose group called Momentum, uh, who basically acted as, as, as election agents and, and provided the thousands, if necessary, of people getting out their electioneering for him within the Labour Party. Um, are being attacked. Momentum does consist of a whole range of people. But what is occurring now is that most of them are actually, if not in the Labour Party already, are joining the Labour Party. There are those who... There are the sort of old diehards, the old Stalinists and groups from some of the Trotskyist sects who are still playing silly interest games and still playing the destructive games that they'd always played in and outside the Labour Party. But they are fairly isolated. They're being isolated. There was an attack on, for example, some personal attacks, not physical, but some personal attacks by the media on those cabinet members or shadow cabinet members and others who voted with the Tories. Uh, Those sort of personal 
semi-hysterical attacks have always been part of politics and always will remain so. It's unpleasant, um, but that is what it's about, particularly with social media, because it gives every freak, every individual, the right to say what they want, when they want and how they want. And that is not, in the overall sense, a bad thing, but it does create an impression of a, a bit of a baying mob out there. Um, but that does not represent momentum. Momentum is a much bigger thing than that, much more powerful and much more broadly based. So what, are you saying that uh, there's uh, groups of people who are grassroots activists who are pushing an agenda which is uh, pro-working uh, class, pro uh, uh, normalization of uh, issues of social welfare, uh, that sort of stuff, as opposed to the neoliberal agenda. That's what momentum is? Oh, yes, most certainly. Oh, God, yeah. That is the real basis of momentum, the new drift to the left in order to... The rush to the left in the Labour Party, that is the basis. They're against austerity. They're against the whole austerity program. In that, they have a lot in common with similar groups in Portugal, France, and certainly Greece. Um, that, that is the basis of it. Uh, without that, there would, have been, there, there would not be a momentum. There would not be uh, the Corbynistas. There would not be this huge change. That's what's triggered it. There's no question about that. Even though bombing in Syria and so on major issues, and they're divisive issues, but the real issue is the fight against austerity, the austerity program. And the old guard in the Labour Party supported it in one form or another. That's the crux of it all. Is this part of uh, a renewal or a re-establishing of people's understanding of class, effectively, class interests. Yeah, yes. In one sense, it is. In one sense, it is. And that's reflected in the trade, official trade union support from a number of official trade unions for Corbyn and the leadership. But the class issues is, is rather more clouded these days. We don't have a, a, a very a huge industrial working class. What we have are hundreds of thousands of wage slaves sometimes going to work in, in huge computing companies, uh, white-collar workers, if you like, and it is among them that is an enormous support as well. They are gaining nothing from austerity. Um, they also represent a... a a working class with a different sort of background, a different sort of education, but nevertheless still working class, still selling their labour virtually, with many with uh, manual working class backgrounds, parents and so on. Uh, there was a very interesting clip of uh, Corbyn on his Facebook uh, at uh, the Oldham by-election. Uh, he's gone there to congratulate the winner, the Labour Party winner, and he yeah. uses the term investment. He's investing in uh, 
work uh, programs, investing in education, investing in uh, the development of uh, Oldham. And uh, it's a classic uh, uh, language for uh, development of people's future lives, uh, quite uh, not radical at all, in a sense. In other words, engaging in very old-fashioned Keynesian, Rooseveltian, if you like, economics, pump priming, getting the industry, getting industry moving, getting the rebuilding the infra, infra, infrastructure, building millions of low-cost low or low-rent, good-quality housing. These are the sort of things, and this is actually what Obama's been doing in one form or another. Why the Americans aren't in this deep the trouble of this country in that respect. Yes, that is that is right. That's that's what he's talking about. And it is quite old fashioned. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it's old fashioned in the sense that it works. And it certainly worked at certain stages in history. There's no reason why it shouldn't now. Instead of being preoccupied with debt, uh, or pretending to be occupied with debt as this government is uh, actually using loans, using finance, to get ourselves out of the trouble in a productive way. For example, the banks that they virtually nationalised could have been used as investment banks and called housing and investment banks to pump prime the economy. And that seems to me to be... And it's also not just a Labour Party concept that goes far beyond that. What are the things that people are talking about in your local uh, Labor uh, group? Well, that's interesting because when we went to our first Labor Party meeting after rejoining the Labor Party, we were struck by the fact that the, the branches had grown, had trebled or quadrupled in size, that the average age, and it's not a big market, the average age had dropped considerably, they weren't as old as I am by any means, as they were before, but the age had dropped. Um, many were people who had wanted, had left the Labour Party over Blairites, over uh, the war and Blairism and so on and austerity, and were coming back into it. Um, so that is creating, that would create certain problems within certain branches or certain wards of the Labour Party, as it did in this one. Um, but everybody is enormously heartened by the fact that there's this whole new group of people coming in, prepared to letterbox, prepared to knock on doors, prepared to get out there and electioneer where necessary, and also prepared to take part in local campaigns outside the Labour Party, like, say, the hospitals and those sort of things. So that's what's actually happening within the broad sweep of the Labour Party. It's becoming a bigger, more active, and probably chronologically younger as far as the membership is concerned. So there are huge changes within the Labour Party itself. They must be really disturbing for lots of old, uh, older members who suck with Blair right through the whole crap. Um, disturbing for them, but also heartening. I'm quite sure many of them will be dragged along by uh, uh, kicking and screaming sometimes by the more progressive policies. Do you think that it's a, a bit strange that uh, there's this resurgence of uh, left uh, reality in England while the French have just had an election where the uh, 
National Front has increased its vote. It didn't get any uh, any uh, regions, but it got an increase in its votes. And uh, we've also got, uh, you know, uh, other areas where um, right-wing attitudes are increasing. That is in quite sharp contrast, isn't it? For example, although the National Front haven't done as well as everybody feared they would, and, in, and, and they hoped they would, um, they still hold a huge percentage of French public opinion and French votes. But what happened in the recent by-election is the Labour Party completely trounced Britain's National Front, UKIP, UK Independence Party. They were really sidelined in the recent elections, um, and that uh, that does sh- show some sharp contrast. As people say, people are tired of the old parties. They're worn out. They're tired. They're exhausted. They've done bugger all about the economy, as far as the masses of people are concerned. Uh, but people are disillusioned with them. But the disillusionment is reflected differently in different countries. For example, in Portugal. There is the, this new wave of anti-austerity by women, by the way. In Portugal, in Spain, in Greece, in this country, there is a groundswell against traditional parties, but it's a groundswell that has moved to the left, as against France, where it's moved to the right. I don't know what's going to happen in Germany, but, uh, but I, I, I do have some hope that the National Front will never, ever get a presidency in France. Yeah, they were out-politicked. That was it. They were out-politicked because the uh, socialists and the uh, more more moderate right co- uh, would, you could say, colluded <laughs> in keeping them out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's also an indication that beating the nationalist drum, the patriotic drum, might work temporarily for the French uh, and others. And certainly it's working in Eastern Europe, in Hungary and so on, but it doesn't work here. There is lots of beating the drum where British and so on, but it is not as powerful. It doesn't go as deeply here. And that's obvious by the new trend in politics. I'm not saying there aren't super nationalists. I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't politicians who are going to beat that drum, but Corbyn and his supporters are certainly not beating that drum. There's, the element of patriotism and flag wagging is, uh, is, is, is virtually absent in those parties uh, from the left. And it's quite healthy, it's quite good. Do you think that, uh, you know, it's always concerning because big money, uh, big corporations are bigger than governments. How, how is this battle going to be played out? Is it actually possible for Corbyn to become Prime Minister As I said before, the whole of the media, including the Observer and the Guardian, were anti-Corbyn, and still are. In fact, if I were the editor, I'd root out certain people from the columns as columnists from uh, both those papers. There's no question. No, no. I'm not saying that that side shouldn't be heard, but no, it is incessant. It's on and on and on. Corbyn accused of being an anti-Semite, called uh, uh, among among other things and it's all 
utter crap. It's all lies. And it's just amazing how how The Guardian and other papers are, are the so-called liberal press are running along with that. Some of the columnists aren't. But in general, the public face of The Guardian and The Observer is anti-Corbyn. And it, it'll be to their cost, of course, um, and may, they may not hold to that forever. But certainly uh, there is this massive chorus against him, and that will get louder and louder as elections approach. But I still think that that can be braved. I think that that can be we can fly in the face of that. I'm fairly sure that given the current climate, there would, despite the media opposition, despite the howling from within the Labour Party, uh, Blairites and so on, that uh, Labour could romp home in the next election, based on bugger all else if necessary, but the economy. And if they keep pushing that one, uh, uh, I think there's every hope that they could be re-elected. Would Corbyn look any different, be any different from any other Labour Party leader on the face of it? Is he more respectable? Is he a rabble-rouser? Uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that would be swept aside if they press and press and press on the economy, which I think they're beginning to do. You may or may not be aware, but uh, we've got a royal commission into union corruption. Just uh, last Sunday, the uh, Victoria Police arrested the uh, secretary and uh, Vice-Secretary of the Victorian branch of the CFMEU Construction for blackmail, which is a criminal offence, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is a big deal. It reminds me very much of the Clary O'Shea case. There are new union laws being developed here which will restrict the activity, talking about stuff like ticketing and so on. Um, But nothing as savage as that. Nothing as savage as that. If they try that on here... That would do little else but build greater support for the left in the Labour Party. I'm sure the Tories will... uh, What what they are pulling on is dangerous, but not like that. Not as blatantly uh, anti-trade union as that. Yeah, it's appalling, isn't it? That reminds me very much of the O'Shea case, which in turn led to a nationwide response. See, the current thing here is they're using the Stop the Wall Coalition, which was a broad coalition of people to organise the, well, originally the war against the, the, the Iraqi debacle. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of attacks on them, and on, in particular on certain individuals who are leaders of the group. And it has created problems, um, partly because some of them have a, a sectarian cant, a sectarian attitude um, towards other activists within the broad coalition, but partly, of course, engendered by the press. Um, it, it is a powerful coalition. It was able to organise a march of over a million people in London and elsewhere, and it's, uh, and it's still there. There are still people active in it and still people um, prepared to come out again and do it all again, so that it's quite a good idea for the right to attack them and isolate them and thus attempt to isolate people like Corbyn and those in the Labour Party who supported the Stop the War Coalition. So that's another. It's like an express that some people call them disreputable. Uh, how a group organising a million marches is disreputable, I do not know. But that is some of the 
attempting to isolate Corbyn. To portray him as a rabble rouser, portray him as a troublemaker, portray him as an anti-Semite, portray him as anti, uh, anti-patriotic, and uh, even portray him um, as a clown. Yeah, he's as a clown. His clothes. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a thing on the Telegraph uh, page where they say uh, something about uh, watch this clip of. Uh, Corbyn's morning, you know, uh, uh, confronting the media every morning and then it's got silly music and uh, nothing of the pictures uh, implies anything particular except that he get, goes away on his bike and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, but they've got these yeah. cartoon music that goes with it. Mm. Disrespectful. They can't, they can't, um, yeah, yeah. What they don't realise is that to see a man riding into Parliament, riding into uh, the Palace of Westminster on his bicycle, um, will win support of hundreds of thousands of people. The very sight is cheering them. After all, Boris Johnson, the uh, raving right-wing mayor of London, rides his bike and used it right to... So did uh, earlier, so did um, Cameron. Uh, his bike was even pinched outside Parliament, but they use it as a as a, 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 a populist move, and it didn't work with them. But by God, it's working with Corbyn. So I don't know whether you read there was a, a fundraising dinner uh, recently, and a few nights ago we were away when it happened, and somebody suggested that they raffle Corbyn's hat as a fundraising gesture, which they did. And that and it raised a lot of money. It was a wonderful joke, but the joke was on the media, of course. Yeah. Money went still flowed into the Labour Party uh, and the left. So it's, it's, it's excellent. And the more they attack him on those grounds, the more uh, popular he would become among certain sections of the population. And they all fail to realise that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because... Uh and the fact that they actually act as the publicity campaigners for the right wing is equally fascinating. I mean, they're journalists. They're not paid PR people. They're supposed to be journalists. The whole thing is, is really casting a shadow, if it's not already there, on the journalistic profession. Is it true that the reports that Sadiq Khan, the London mayoral uh, hopeful for that side of politics is trying to distance himself from Corbyn. Is that true? No evidence for that. Yeah, on, on every matter that's important, uh, particularly with regard to London, they're in total agreement. There's no problem at all. <laughs> Diane Abbott would have been, I suggest, would have been Corbyn's favourite from there, um, but he was fairly discreet about all of that. On this bloke, he's seen as being on the left. And um, and I don't know how popular he could or would be, but uh, he'll certainly get the support of people on the left. Of course, uh, but um, Livingston used it quite successfully. Um, the man is on the left and would have the unwavering support of Corbyn and his supporters, uh, even when the, well, when the election begins. No, it's an artificial division that I think is... Um, uh, it won't create a lot of problems. What's the next move for you guys as uh, members, returned members of the Labour Party? Well, 
go to ward meetings, I suppose get dragged into some of the work. I can make the excuse that I'm 80 and I'm too old to do it, but I won't get away with it. <laughs> but we'll just become like ordinary Labor Party members and um, and do the work that you're expected to do. We'll probably take part if there are local campaigns and we're invited to take part in. We most certainly will. Um, we're just standard Labor Party people, I suppose. And I'll, I will always advocate the line that I do follow on um, defending the Labor Party defending the left of the Labour Party and most certainly defending the policies of the Corbynites within the Labour Party and hoping that it reaches the wider world outside it, which is what it is doing. Thank you very much, Rod, for your considered opinion about what's going on in uh, English Labour. And I do hope that the Corbynites are strong enough to make an impact to stay Yeah, well, they've got the masses of the media working against them. But it's fascinating, isn't it, to realise that, as Rod said, there's nothing new about uh, the Corbynite arrangements. Uh, It's just so long since uh, people have actually witnessed a a party that's actually representing the interests of the majority of people. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen a social democratic force that actually acted like one. Yeah. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, it's been terribly hot so uh, we might uh, give you a message from Paul Holman. He's uh, from the Ambulance uh, Victoria and uh, then we might give you some heat tips. Good morning. Uh, I have a responsibility here today to share with our community what me and my colleagues behind me here see every summer and that is that heat kills. Heat kills by us not taking care of ourselves and respecting the heat. Heat kills by us not hydrating and looking after ourselves. Heat kills by not checking on our neighbours and the vulnerable people in the community. And heat kills by being complacent and leaving our children locked in cars. Now, we as a community can do something about this. The ministers and the government and the various departments have put a tremendous effort into making sure that we as a community are informed, we're informed about what it is that we can do, we're informed about what actions can take. But do you know something? It's up to us as a community. We pride ourselves on being a community that looks after one another, looks after our mates. You can save someone's life by heeding these warnings. You can save someone's life by making sure you look after yourself and particularly the vulnerable and those socially isolated people, knock on someone's door, particularly in the next three days. Uh, For ambulance, uh, come Saturday, we've nearly got a perfect storm of heat, Christmas celebrations, uh, all rolled into one. Every ambulance resource that we have will be available on Saturday night and out working, and we know we're going to be stretched. So we need your help as a community. We've got the government support, we've got the minister's support to get this messaging out there, but we need you to help us. What has uh, the Red Cross got to say? Well, they say some tips for coping with the heat. They say drink regularly, even if you don't feel thirsty. And apparently that your instinct to drink or be thirsty as you get older um, goes reduces. down, reduces. So um, drink even if you don't feel thirsty. Water is the best option. Avoid alcohol, tea, coffee and sugary or fizzy drinks as they make dehydration worse. Uh, eat little and often rather than large meals. Try to eat more cold foods, particularly salads and fruit which contain water. Stay indoors in the coolest rooms of your house or in the shade during the hottest part of the day. Take cool showers and splash yourself with cold water several times a day, particularly your face and the back of your neck. A loose cotton damp cloth or a scarf on the back of the neck can also help you stay cool. 
Make sure that there is sufficient air circulation, whether from an air conditioner, if you're lucky enough to have one, or by leaving a secured window or door open. If you must go out, stay in the shade, wear a hat and light-coloured, loose-fitting clothes, preferably made of natural fibres. Wear sunglasses and apply sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 30 to expose skin or 50 like me if you're a redhead. (laughs) Um, If you will be outside for some time, take plenty of water with you. And for those in high fire risk areas, make sure you stay tuned to your local emergency broadcaster. And if you want more information on how to be prepared for emergencies, large and small, um, visit redcross.org.au backslash prepare. In the Arts Express summer season, Valerie Fafala and Trish Posterino are running four special programs on Australian women in jazz. First of all, we'll hear from jazz drummer and organiser of the Melbourne Women in Jazz Festival, Sonia Horbelt. Then contemporary violinist Zani Kolak, sax player Angela Davis, pianist and composer Andrea Keller and stunning jazz vocalist Bridget Allen. They'll be performing their music for our listeners either live in the 3CR studio or with their CDs. We'll also look at the history and experiences of jazz women in the traditionally male arena of jazz in Melbourne, how they became heard in the competitive field, working alongside other male and female musicians for the love of jazz. Our special dates for Australian women in jazz are Thursday, December the 17th, Thursday, January the 7th, 21st and 28th of 2016 at 10.30am till 11am on Thursday. So don't forget to tune in. We resume Arts Express in February 2016. And that's a tip to tell you that uh, this is the last live program for Solidarity Breakfast for 2015 and uh, we've been uh, wearing our little fingers to the bone to provide you with new material for the summer season so even though we're it's going to be dead no live uh, um, panelists have been hurt in this uh, production over the next uh, four weeks all the material will be new no repeats, all new stuff, very interesting stuff. I've been collecting and collecting, Kim. Yes, but if you call in, you will find that we're not actually here. That's exactly right. That's the tip. That's the tip for, for the season. But uh, that's okay. You can bliss out. 3CR still got, is still going to air over the, the uh, Christmas season to the new year, and we've got lots of goodies for all you people who... Uh, whose ears are uh, open to the good news of uh, real politic. And uh, what we're going to talk about now is real politic. We're going to talk about public housing and a new report that's come out that from uh, Prosper Australia called Speculative Vacancies, the Empty Properties Ignored by Statistics. Uh, this has uh, come out uh, very recently. It's caused a bit of a stir. It's actually coming out of, uh, if you want uh, lots more updates about this, you can go to a Renegade Economist, which is a 3CR program. It's on uh, in midweek. Uh, they're going to be broadcasting through the summer season. But uh, Carl, we talked to Carl Fitzgerald from Renegade Economist Prosper Australia about um, the um, the vacancies. There's a, they registered. And the economics behind it. You would think that getting a tenant in would be helpful to the landlord, but apparently you can make money 
and have empty properties. That's exactly right. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to have a yarn with, I had a yarn with Kelly, Spike, Joel and Fiona, who are from the homeless union, homelessness union, and uh, they have been staking out a property out in Ashburton, which is called the Markham Avenue Housing Estate, which was public housing, but uh, which has now be, been put over to being demolished and uh, being um, put over to a private developer. And uh, there will be no public housing in the mix when they rebuild whatever it is they rebuild. That's awful. I'm really worried about homeless people, especially in this heat. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. Well, I suppose... Uh, well, uh, let's hope that uh, um, businesses, uh, large businesses, follow uh, what Adelaide businesses are doing, which are actually opening opening their doors to people to sit in their foyers and stuff of that nature, which is a very interesting. This was a, that's actually an initiative coming from their government, uh, mm. from their council. Uh, yeah, they're very interesting. They're obviously quite aware of the dangers of heat. Uh, Adelaide's been. Uh, uh, floating in the uh, f- over 40 uh, margin for days. Fourth day. Yeah. Fourth day of over 40. Mm. Horrifying. <laughs> no climate change here. Anyway, let's go to Kelly Spike, Joel and Fiona, uh, and you'll get to understand the issues. Okay, so Spike, can you give us a, a background to what happened out at the Ashburton public housing or what was public housing. Yeah, definitely. Um, From the perspective of the Homeless Persons Union, we, as part of our, I suppose, counter-narrative or our our policy uh, standing on public housing is that we believe in public housing. We believe that it's been paid for by consolidated revenue and people's taxes for generations and that it belongs to the public and, you know, we have a situation where there's 35,000 homeless people on the public housing waiting list, 83,000 empty houses, um, and public housing that we've paid for and we're not being consulted that is, is going to be knocked down and, being deni- and people are being denied housing as a fundamental human right. And so we, we attended to um, articulate that, that we thought that was wrong. And we thought that the people that live there should have... The consultation process was a sham. So how did you find out about uh, the Ashburton block of flats? It was, well, uh, it was in the age. And uh, there was members of the Homeless Persons Union that were actually squatting the empty buildings out there. And it come to their attention that um, the 56 units that remained were going to be demolished and it's your contention that uh, with government policy changes towards social housing that uh, they've allowed it to become dilapidated. That's right. That's right, John. Uh, Article 25 of Human Rights, you've got a right to housing. And in 2006, the United Nations did a report about uh, the state of housing and what the government's doing and said you're failing. Uh, there's a lack of affordable housing, there's a lack of affordable rental properties and public uh, housing isn't keeping demand. Uh, so are you talking demand. about Victoria in particular or Australia, Australia in general? But when it comes to Victoria, um, it's no different. Each state is, is falling behind on its obligations to uh, meet people's housing needs. Um, under the NAPFINE government, they ripped $470 million out of the homeless budget and we're seeing uh, public housing assets uh, depleting as time goes on. 
So, and when you say depleting, tell I know that some people don't know the difference between public housing and social housing. They think that social housing is the same thing as public housing. So, okay. So technically, social housing is an umbrella term which includes public housing and community housing. Public housing is uh, properties that you rent directly from the government, where the rents are capped at 25% of your income, whereas community housings are it's a mix. Sometimes they're still owned by the state and managed by not-for-profit organisations, or they're, or they're directly owned by NFPs. And um, Fiona can speak to this. Uh, rents are not always capped at 25% of one's income. Yeah, rents in um, social and community housing can be up to about 50%. Um, they're, they're not capped at 25%. But also, it's, isn't it true that in uh, often it means that people have to, will not be offered social housing if they're not uh, earning, say, right. $25,000 a year? That's right. One of the, uh, the, definition, one of the definitions um, of... Social housing is the, the rents of social housing that it needs to be that you need to have had a private paid lived in a, a private dwelling in the past where you've paid thirty percent of more in your income of your income in rent. So you, to to be entitled to social housing, you entitled. need to have met. That's right. You need to have met that criteria of paying thirty percent of your income or more in a private dwelling in the past, and that's why. You know, uh, in the union, we're seeing that as uh, it's it's not ethnic cleansing; it's social cleansing because it's middle Australia. It's it's right next to Hawthorne, and really middle class areas where they don't want uh, the area to be blighted by what what is perceived, you know, the negative stereotype of public housing. And it's abrogation by the government. They're they're palming off their responsibility to meet a human right of. Any, any Australian, onto non-for-profits. And that's a concern. There's no security of tenure. So um, with public housing, if you sort of uh, don't use drugs or you know, commit crimes and that there, you've got it for the rest of your life. Um, but, and uh, also you could buy it. Could buy that's it. That's right. But social housing, uh, you could end up a new non-for-profit owns it in three years' time and they Someone. jack the rent up and, and you can't stay there or... Yeah, there's no sort of uh, security of tenure. So, and, and it, it does. It's really. It's. It's. I suppose it's. Um, and I think Jenny Smith made it clear in an article. She, you know, one of her blogs this week. She was saying that Prosper Australia did some research, and there's eighty three thousand empty houses, private or public, in, in Victoria. There's thirty five thousand people on the waiting list. Technically, those people could be housed tomorrow. And um, alongside the demolition of the estate out at Ashburton on Markham Avenue, um, the Homeless Persons Union did a bit of a drive through the neighbourhood um, on the weekend just past, and we detected at least 10 empty, beautiful public housing houses just sitting there vacant. Yeah. Within a couple of blocks. That was just in one suburb of Melbourne. So what has the government got to say about this? It's 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 you uh, it's an interesting one because historically there was in two thousand and six five hundred thousand dollars was slated to be spent on Markham the Markham uh, public housing estate the money wasn't spent wow. so that through they've intentionally not acted so through their inaction they've allowed something to fall into disrepair 
because maybe the developers have got into their ear and said, look, you can make, you know, not 25% of someone's income. You'd be able to make four or $500 a week. And this is, you know, through attrition. They haven't replaced, when someone's left an apartment, they haven't replaced them. So there's definitely a campaign or some sort of, you know, a, a, a policy move. Uh, the Victorian government have planned uh, a policy called Plan Melbourne, and and that's to deal with uh, the growing population, and the way they're going to address uh, lower income and, and people who are experiencing homelessness is to create high rises at Frankston and Craigieburn and and places like that that are on the peripheries of town, and basically keep. Uh, central Melbourne for middle class and, and upper class, and it, it is social cleansing. It's gentrification. It's, uh, it's uh, really uh, following the bad outcomes of what happened in England, really. That's what they did in England. And, and recently we saw the East West Link project where $1.1 billion was spent on an infrastructure project ahead of their obligation to meet people's human rights. Mm. Yeah. What were you going to say? They use um, knee-jerk sort of propaganda to say public housing is a shame and a disgrace and it's knee-jerk, automatic, reactive language that just comes out as soon as you mention public housing. The issue around public housing changing the uh, government's obligation, calling people who require public housing to be the criminals, as it were, and then opening the doors for private developers. That land out in uh, um, Ashburton, how are the developers getting their hands on that land? Do they pay through, for it? Through, through making... Um, a, a through giving a tender to Places Victorious. It's a, it's a corporate arm of the state government. The Community Housing Federation offered, made an offer to them and said they were going to do, uh, uh, replace the 60 units that are currently there with 180 private dwellings and 60 um, social housing dwellings. That would be 30% or more. Is there any public income. housing? No. no. No, not at all. And it's and and through by the HPU going looking around, you can tell the houses that were fenced off um, were all public housing. So this there is definitely a campaign by uh, some sort of uh, move by the Labor government to to get rid of um, all the public housing that we could see in, in Alamein. This has been going on for a long time yeah. now. We think you know. Fairfield, when we when we look at Plan Melbourne and we know that they're building ghettos and high rises on the outskirts of town, that Fairfield is likely going to be another new suburb that is um, hit up by developers to profiteer off of um, people's public assets. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. So you've been trying to find a you you've taken quite a long time to find a new dwelling, haven't you, Kim? Yeah, it's been a month and it's been extremely difficult and. Very, very competitive. You turn up to these housing inspections and if it's even somewhat affordable, there is just like every every person and their dog is there. It's just absolutely ridiculous and you just keep meeting the same people that you've been meeting for weeks and weeks. Um, so it's very socially awkward as well. <laughs> but I think that it's really important to emphasise that this is not just an issue for people who can't afford private housing, that actually the fact that people have public houses 
like public housing actually brings down the private rental market, it brings down the price. And so it helps everyone, not just the homeless, but actually public housing tenants, you could say, are doing a public service. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, it also tells you uh, more strength to the arm of the Homeless Persons Union and the importance of a place like 3CR, where they are actually given a voice. They are working very hard to bring to people's attention something that is fundamentally uh, a uh, human rights abuse, what's going on in uh, as, as government policy regarding uh, putting roofs overhead. Basically, there, there has been a complete move away from public housing. And uh, we're now going to talk to Carl Fitzgerald from Prosper Australia. I did. I went down to have a yarn with him. about, And they are deeply concerned about uh, uh, how land is used as part of a pivot within an economic context. And their report, which you can get online, Speculative Vacancies 8, The Empty Properties Ignored by Statistics, They've uh, established from using a method of uh, the uh, honing in on the actual water usage of properties. This is how uh, they've actually established that there's over 80,000 investment properties that have no tenants at all. And he explains to us why this situation has come about. Do we really have a, cri- a crisis in housing or is it manufactured? We don't have a housing supply crisis, according to your latest report. We are literally locked out, which is a great quotable quote. But do you want to talk to it, Carl? The housing supply crisis is manufactured through artificial scarcity due to the fact we have no official measurement of our vacant land and housing. So the vacancy rates we hear about in the press is... For property that's been on the rental market for three weeks or more. But with properties earning around about $18,000 in rental, um, for some wealthy property owners, the thought of enjoying fifty dollars to $60,000 in capital gains just for doing nothing, just for owning property and seeing all these community developments um, happen around the neighbourhood, seeing more and more tax incentives for property speculators to jump into the market, these things are delivering the, this free lunch in the form of the, the was it $525 billion, the value of Australia's land, increased by last year. Now I want you to explain capital gains. So that is the increase in the value of your property in this instance, your real estate. And in 1999... The world's greatest treasurer, Peter Costello, gave the housing industry a handout, if you like, for the uh, as a reward for their valiant lobbying efforts over the GST. And the housing industry, as always, one of the most elaborately funded lobby groups, was front and centre in the press saying that the GST was going to make housing unaffordable because the 10% tax on all of the wood, nails and plumbing fittings and whatnot would make it just that bit more difficult for people to buy a house. So under the current economic thinking, where we only think about capital and labour, it was thought it would be a good idea to give a 50% discount 
on any capital gains. So up to that point, if you were someone paying an income tax of 47% and your property increased by $47,000, for example, you would pay a tax rate of 47% on that $47,000. But thanks to Mr Costello, that got halved to 23.5%. And that's the big trigger that kicked off the housing bubble that's now been running 16 odd years. I suppose the, the core point is this fallacy that, uh, you know, the premise of giving this 50% discount was we need more investment in housing. But, uh, you know, you, you, we have a set amount of land. So more investment on a fixed land mass is only going to increase the price of land. And unfortunately, uh, with this uh, you know, Australia's most dramatic rezoning agenda we've experienced here in Victoria with Melbourne expanding the size of Canberra, probably Canberra and a half. Uh, still, there's not been enough housing supply to push prices down to any level. And we keep pushing with this speculative vacancy report to say, well, come on, when are we actually going to see a return on our public policy? We uh, have gifted how many billion dollars worth of land to uh, uh, insiders, those lucky enough to already um, have a roof over their head. And uh, we, we have a challenge to try and quantify how many of the billions have been uh, benefited to these people. But in terms of affordable housing, there's an uproar even if housing prices flatline, let alone fall back to long-term fundamentals. So if we were to say, look, Let's see if we can get a 25% saving uh, according to the benefits that have been gifted to the, the wealthy. So let's say, for example, they've had uh, you know, $500 billion worth of land rezonings and uh, we want 25% of that. We want $100 billion worth of affordable housing, thanks. What chance do you think we've got of getting that? But the return on, on these sort of uh, public policy uh, agendas is so poor for the public interest. Uh, it's time more people jumped up and down about it and they can only get away with it because we're so distracted with so many issues hitting us all at once. But uh, I like to remind listeners of 3CR that when you tie so many of these issues back, it comes towards this concept of monopoly power. And whatever industry you're in, um, whether it's got kind of funding shortfalls or affordability pressures, um, it comes back to those same economic principles. It's good, though. I feel that there have been some major steps forward. It's fantastic now that the Tax Justice Network and others have been pushing for this level of transparency to see these 600 companies. Uh, I'm sure there only the companies above $100 million have been exposed, but we will whittle that down further. But uh, I feel that uh, the... the the appetite for deep-seated reform has never been greater and uh, you'd like to think so after, uh, you know, 16 slash 24 years of this great Australian economic miracle and so many people having 
missed out on uh, what really is a first-come, first-served agenda. And I was speaking to a shop owner the other day who was thinking his lucky stars. He bought in Brunswick Geese when prices were under 200000 And there he is now uh, on a seven, dollars $800,000 property. And, yeah, he couldn't look me in the eye and say that he deserved that whole $600,000. And that's what we're saying is that instead of that $600,000 um, pushing us into debt for the person who buys that property off him next, um, that 600000 would be spread out over 20 years and replace our income taxes. In your report, you've shown that uh, something like 80,000 uh, investment properties are vacant in Melbourne at this moment, probably rising. Let's look at the different people that might be involved in the housing market. So you've got investors, you've got foreign investors, you've got local investors who, uh, and some who are sort of what would be... Const- uh, seen as mum and dad investors who are thinking that they're going to cover themselves for instead of having in, uh, superannuation they're going to have investment properties you've got uh, people who are up and coming who have got enough stake and they start buying investment properties but then you've got the first homeowners people who just want to live in a home and have a home and uh, then you who are finding it unaffordable then you have people who are part of the working poor who have got an option to have some social housing but then you've got people who are not going to have any hope in hell of getting homes and they were to be uh, covered by public housing but we're seeing the public housing being uh, lopped off and we're over 25,000 people homeless already in, in Victoria. Yes, there are the policy priorities, hey? just uh, finish off on uh, this uh, thing about uh, the government policy and private developers raiding the public commons. We're now moving to a, a promotional campaign coming from these quarters, uh, rebadging uh, people who uh, are on um, benefits as uh, welfare rather than social security recipients. There's the deserving poor and the undeserving poor rhetoric that's going on. But this raiding of the public commons, actually, these people are pilfering from the public purse. And part of that's because the public housing model is under pressure. Um, There's not a, a, a private incentive for public housing tenants to look after um, those properties. Uh, and there's not a budget to have the sort of repair work needed. So um, at a deeper level, I really feel we need things like community land trusts, which are a mix of public and private. Uh, But the big concern is that uh, as governments run out of money, they will attempt to sell off to uh, insiders at sometimes sweetheart deals, uh, former public housing sites, and uh, these are so lucrative in terms of the millions of dollars in rezoning that can occur that developers are very willing to set up a, a private account in Switzerland or Liechtenstein, wherever, and try and uh, find uh, a politician or two to lobby for them inside government rankings. So we saw a lot of that in ICAC. Uh, we've seen it uh, this year in Fisherman's Bend as well. And the tragic thing is that these same people can avoid paying their taxes and have the gall to call people who legitimately are trying to find work as dole 
bludgers. But here these guys are. They don't actually have to lift a finger. They can just buy this property and sit on it. And uh, there we go in Victoria last year. Uh, uh, residential land values increased $133 billion. And if you like, that is a form of uh, uh, property owning welfare that should be going back to the public. And if we did that, these 82,000 empty homes would no longer be economic. Um, you know, people would have to get on their horse and either rent them out quickly or sell them. And there'd be some competition in that market. So there's competition in capital, competition in labour, but when it comes to the land market, uh, it's uh, sacred uh, turf that can't be touched. And we're hoping that more and more people are going to read this report and really get into some of the recommendations so that uh, we can call these politicians on their on their uh, their crap. Buy a ticket in the 3CR Summer Radiothon raffle. And not only will you be supporting independent radio, but you could be in the running to win a new bike kindly donated by Reed Cycles. Reed Cycles have stores in North Melbourne, Windsor and Collingwood. Check out their website, reedcycles.com.au. Call the station now on 94198377 to get your tickets. Reed Cycles is a 3CR supporter. And you're with uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning with Annie and Kim. Um, Because it is so devastatingly hot today, I'm going to... Uh, Again, read the Red Cross's tips for coping with the heat. Some of their tips are to drink regularly, even if you don't feel thirsty. This is very important. Water is the best option. Avoid alcohol, tea, coffee and sugary or fizzy drinks as they make dehydration worse. Eat little and often rather than large meals. Try to eat more cold food, particularly salads and fruit which contain water. Stay indoors in the coolest rooms of your house or in the shade during the hottest part of the day. Take cool showers and splash yourself with cold water several times a day, particularly your face and the back of your neck. A loose cotton damp cloth or scarf on the back of the neck can also help you stay cool. Make sure that there is sufficient air circulation, either from an air conditioner or by leaving a secure window or door open. If you must go out, stay in the shade. Wear a hat and light-coloured, loose-fitting clothes, preferably made of natural fibres. Wear sunglasses to protect your eyes and apply sunscreen with a sun protection factor of 30 to exposed skin. And as a redhead, I would recommend uh, 50 plus. If you will be outside for some time, take plenty of water with you. For those in high fire risk areas, make sure you stay tuned to your local emergency broadcaster. And for more information on how to get prepared for emergencies, both large and small, visit redcross.org.au backslash prepare. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we've got uh, Noah on the line. How are you, Noah? How are you, Noah? 
I'm really good, Annie. How are you? <laughs> good morning, <laughs> Noah. Good morning. Who else is there? Is Kim. That... It's Kim. Kim, is it? Hello, Kim. How are you? Good, thank you. I've noticed that uh, we thought we'd do a wrap-up because, of course, this is the last live Solidarity Breakfast and uh, before Christmas. And uh, I've noticed that ISIS has now been called by a variety of sources as uh, Daesh. Isn't that interesting? Daesh, yes. Daesh. Daesh, yes. It's an Arabic term that sort of reflects the Western uh, idea of it as a cult, as a death cult. Uh, it doesn't translate in exactly into that but it's a it's meant to uh denigrate it and uh and uh, i guess also to um to remove the islamic element of it so to sort of deny it it's right to claim uh sort of some islamic authenticity so i can understand the reason for changing the name because it does i mean the the islamophobia that's been that's resulted from the sort of uh sort of poor well, I don't know how you want to put it, the sort of brutality and the way it's been uh, presented in Western discourse certainly hasn't helped Muslims around the world. I suppose that the motivation for the name from the Arab world to the Western world is a bit different, I suppose. In the West, when they use it, they want to delegitimize um, IS as a state, whereas possibly in the Middle East they want to distance themselves from IS? Indeed, yes. And I mean, the, the whole thing with Tony Abbott calling it a death cult was actually not to obscure its Islamic uh, um, sort of uh, relationship or context, but rather to link the idea of the Islamic uh, element to, you know, this sort of fanatical, uh, incredible, um, you know, sort of uh, brutal uh, idea of a cult. And um, I think also to sort of delegitimize Islam. Uh, generally, I mean, I, you know, I'm not here to defend uh, ISIS by any means. They are uh, an incredibly brutal and uh, and and terribly uh, sort of dystopic movement. But nonetheless, uh, there is and there is an element, Islamic element, you know, in the sense that they do draw on ideology that is essentially uh, um, not essentially, but has the Islamic context to it. Um, but to, but also on the other hand, uh, they are a creature of a incredibly uh, sort of uh, uh, incredibly dysfunctional region that uh, um, that has had decades of colonial, imperial, authoritarian uh, politics that's played out in different ways and converged to create these sort of. Uh, phenomenon. Uh, it's not Islamic in a sense, but of course, it is a reflection of the way that Islamic politics has been used to uh, really uh, solidify certain types of power relations in the Middle East. Now, it's interesting that you, you're pointing it out, that uh, basically one should never forget the ec- economic and uh, political imperatives. And uh, in this era of American uh, imperialists, not necessarily government, but imperialists in general. Uh, it, it's quite clear that uh, right across the world, they have used war to maintain their economic and political control of the globe. And this is merely another example of it, what's happening in Syria. I mean, war's been an incredibly powerful tool uh, for the for the ruling class, not just internationally, but domestically. I mean, we have here... Uh, incredibly securitized state, both 
internally and also in terms of how we deal with people who are fleeing war and um, economic chaos in their own uh, countries. So absolutely, I agree. I couldn't agree more. The, the financial benefits that accrue from uh, from different types of uh, um, use of violence is, you know, a part of the imperial project today. I mean, it has been for hundreds of years. Colonialism was first and foremost a military exercise. Before anything else, it was all about uh, the use of physical force. All the ideological and economic controls that uh, ensued afterwards uh, followed the act of, um, of, military, of military conquest. Just to talk about Syria, I heard today on the radio that the Americans and the Russians are apparently considering some sort of ceasefire or peace agreement, which um, makes me very cynical. What's your thoughts on it? Uh, this whole thing is purely window dressing, in my view. Um, if you're not going to get the key, um, the key Syrian actors to sit down and talk through a possible resolution, then there's no point the Russians and the Americans and the Iranians and the Saudis talking it through. First and foremost, oh, sorry. Uh, first and foremost, there is a crisis in Syrian politics, and until that's taken seriously, uh, then really the the, the potential for a, uh, a ceasefire or a, a sort of a, a de-escalation of the conflict is really unlikely. It's... In my view, I mean, you know, I I'd like to see all the international actors pull out and let the Syrians resolve this in some orderly way, but. First and foremost, those those people have to get together. I think that uh, what they're doing is using Syria as a location for, uh, like a psychological drama, except it's in the real world and real people are dying. Uh, behind the scenes, if we go across to Europe, uh, there's something very interesting has happened, which is that uh, the Ukraine's debt to Russia uh, has, but the IMF have basically stepped in and said that... Uh, they are going to forgive that debt to Russia. A lot of this stuff is actually about um, brinkmanship and control at the uh, Russian and American level, isn't it? I mean, I haven't heard that. It's a very interesting story. I mean, there is certainly a Cold War of sorts going on at the global level between the US and what it sees now to be its major competitors, and that is uh, the Russia, China and uh, to some extent the EU. Um, and I think the current climate internationally is one about uh, the, that sort of hegemonic politics play or the politics of um, hegemony playing out. And Syria has been caught in the middle of it, as has the Ukraine, um, which the crisis in Ukraine was really a struggle between NATO or the EU and Russia for control of a... Of, uh, of a country that's very strategically important to Russia. Um, so, yeah, I think that's certainly occurring on one level. But on another level, there's the crisis of late capitalism, which continues to plague uh, the sort of uh, stability. It undermines the stability of the system and it's creating particular crises uh, that, uh, that the system itself cannot resolve. And, I mean, we're seeing that in the way that right-wing politics is... Uh, increased, and we've seen it in the ter ter terms of the uh, in increasing number of movements like um, 
ISIS that we started with, but Boko Haram, uh, the cartels in in um, in Mexico. The, I mean, these are all, I think, symptoms of a particular type of global crisis. Uh, whether it's the Tea Party, the Golden Dawn, the Mexican cartels, they do actually have, uh, I think, similar causes, or they are symptoms of a similar problem. Now, in the and, sp- that's being, and that's being forgotten. I mean, when we talk about ISIS, when the people talk about ISIS, they, they sort of uh, abstract it from a much larger crisis that's uh, occurring globally. Uh, in, in my view. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. I, I, I think that's a real food for thought. Uh, the uh, with Abbott running around like some sort of chook without a head. Or uh, mad monk. Mad monk, yeah, yeah no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some people have been saying uh, things like uh, it, it's a sign of a potential collapse in the. Conservative Party in Australia, although I don't call the Liberal Party a Conservative Party, they aren't conserving anything except their own bank balances. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you got any views on this? I, I mean, I think we have. I mean, yes, I do have some views. I think the conserv- we've, we've Australia, like many parts of the world, is being polarised. The centre's been hollowed out, and we've seen a shift to the right and a lesser shift to the left. Um, and I think what we're seeing in the Liberal Party is a struggle between a very small and relatively weak um, centre and quite strong and, uh, and, and well-backed, well-financed uh, right. And I actually think the Conservative Party will probably lurch further to the right in, uh, in future years. I think it will take a similar... It's taking a similar trajectory to... The U.S. in some, in some, to some extent, Turnbull is sort of an Obama, in a sense. He's a consensus figure that the right has put forward in the hope that they can maintain or can, or, or, or stay in power. But ultimately, uh, he's not representative of the um, the politics and the ideological beliefs of the majority of people in the party. Just as Obama is not representative of the majority of the beliefs of the ruling class in the U.S. Um, yeah, I really agree with that because I think that actually what Turnbull is representative of is the views of the capitalists and big business because they're sick yeah. of the divisive politics of Abbott and the concert, well, you know, the right in the party getting in the way of yeah. you know things like getting rid of penalty rates and so on. Absolutely, I mean, you know, they would uh, uh, Turnbull will be an effective leader if he can get the party behind him because he will. We will get gay marriage rights, but we'll also get the end of penalty rates. We will get, we'll get um, some, some action on climate change, but we'll probably get, uh, you know, a, 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 another round of sort of work choices of one type or another. We possibly could get a softer, some little bit of softening on uh, rhetoric around, you know, sort of uh, race and, and, uh, and multiculturalism. But we'll probably get, uh, you know, tax cuts for the for the wealthiest in society. I mean, that's how Turnbull will play it out. I agree entirely. He is a creature of the banking class in Australia. I've, I mean, we know that. That's his own history. He's not. He's not, um, and he's not uh, hesitant to put that forward. Well, that's the class he represents, and they are in some ways social, more socially progressive than the people that ABBA represents. There's no doubt about that, but economically they have very similar views. Now, the banker, 
as in Turnbull, the banker, yeah. it's been put to me that the banker has been sending out coded messages to the land, the wild land investors that uh, they should be pulling their head in because uh, they're destabilising the Australian economy. It's possible, yeah. Look, I, you know, it's not something that I've noticed, but, uh, yeah. And, I mean, uh, coded messages possibly, but I'm sure he's speaking to people who have direct contact with, you know, that, that, that group. And he could probably, you know, I'm sure there's, those lobbies and those sort of organisations, uh, institutional links are pretty pretty strong between um, Turnbull and you know the, the, the sort of people who have the financial clout to do those sort of things. I mean, he's a representative of the investor class. There's no doubt. And um, you know, one of one of the things that he will have to do is try and build some sort of consensus around the centre around his politics. And the way he'll do that is to um, give to, to, to give on a whole range of social issues at the same time as he takes the very hard economic uh, sort of economic uh, uh, rationalist view on on uh, on economic issues so yeah I think that's the future if Albert stays in power if, if Turnbull stays in power that was a Freudian slip <laughs> I wanted to ask what you th- what you thought of um Turnbull's innovation agenda, because it seems to me that partly it's just ideological, because a lot of the things they're funding are just these little startups that will probably end up going bankrupt, which is why they've changed or they want to change the bankruptcy laws. Yes, yes. I think this again. It's it's he's just speaking. It's rhetorical. Uh, if he was really talking about innovation, you know, we would be talking about you know really driving infrastructural reform and uh, public transport in. Um, in the NBN and a whole range of other areas, which would actually open up opportunities for state investment, uh, the state has to drive. In, in, um, the state has to be a key player in the driving of innovation. It always has been. It always will be. Um, this sort of uh, privatisation of it is just a, a I think, a, a bit of is. This is throwing a few bones out to to the sort of uh, in the hope that uh, people will see him as being. Uh, as differentiating him from Abbott. These are just tools to sort of say, I'm not like my predecessor. In my view, I don't think there's any real content to what what these policies are, are meant to do. That's the crux of it, really, isn't it? It's neoliberalism in in uh, sheep's clothing. This notion of small government. We've now seen that uh, the uh, a failed government process of trying to raise GST, and at the yeah. same time as having it revealed that the destabilising corporations like Borrell and Lendlease and people of this nature are actually on the uh, 600 company list of companies that do not pay tax. Yeah, uh, I think this, this is going to be one of the really interesting issues that plays out over the next few years. In the UK, this is a key issue. And the rise of Corbyn and of a more, I think, a uh, more muscular Labor response to neoliberalism is really exciting. Now, you know, we don't know how to play out largely because there's a core component uh, and a very strong, important core component of Labor movement in the UK, is it, which is invested in neoliberalism, and that's the Blairite, the sort of legacy of Blairism. 
Um, but if Corbyn can overcome that, he could actually produce. And Scotland's playing a large part, I think, in driving some part, some Scotland and Wales playing some part in uh, driving this potential uh, reinvigoration of uh, the left in the UK. And that, I think, just following it from afar seems really exciting. And the fact that Corbyn has become so personally detested by the, the mainstream media and the uh, and own elements in his own party suggests that he is actually having a real influence on the political discourse and political thinking in the UK. And my hope is that that sort of that process filters over to Australia in some way with a more robust or, a, or, a, or a, as I said, muscular response uh, amongst Labor um, uh, voters. And of course, because the voters really drove Corbyn, not the other way around mm-hmm. in the UK. It was a it was a Labor constituency that brought Corbyn to the top, not the not Corbyn driving it. He wasn't a he's not a charismatic leader that drove people to the left of the Labor Party. It was the left of the Labor Party that drove uh, him into the leadership. And what I, I, that's the sort of response I would like to see here. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, because I think that's obviously what we really need, and also because you've tied in with an earlier interview. I mean, our <laughs> program about um, Corbyn. Right. Um, I. Th- as well, I was just wondering, well, I thought it was interesting, apparently the Australian Bureau of Statistics is, well, they've either, either released today or will be very shortly releasing um, the data on tax avoiders, uh, which would be some interesting data to get into, even though it will. it's heavily, it's limited in that they've changed the laws about what private yeah. companies have to um, expose. Um, but I was wondering um, what you think about those sort of statistics and the the potential for stimulating the economy using actually just the tiny amount of tax that these people are avoiding? I think it's such a crucial issue. I mean, I, you know, as we... Austerity has proven to be a false economy. We've seen it everywhere. And, uh, you know, we all have a responsibility to pay our tax, to, to contribute to, this, to, the, to, this, to the, this, the sort of social uh, fabric. And it's, that's the sort of discourse we need to start to really build is that no, is tax is not a burden. It's a responsibility. It's an obligation. And it's part of our commitment to living with each other. And we need to sh- reshape the way we talk about these sort of things. Not And, and you know, one of the things I've really been quite uh, observant of over the last few years is how many people define themselves now as taxpayers when they talk about uh, uh, sort of public issues. You know, we shouldn't do, as a taxpayer, we should not, do A or we should do B. Um, whereas in a previous, and I, you know, I'd like to do a bit more research on this if I had the time, but I think that has changed that sense that we have an entitlement to talk about uh, um, ourselves in, the, in that way. I think is a change from an early period where we talked about ourselves as members of a community or as citizens or as contributors or, you know, there, I think the language has changed around that and what we need to do is to shift that language back. I mean, I really see the first 12 to 18 months of the Rudd government as a huge opportunity lost. With the social capital or the political capital that Rudd had, especially around the time of the apology, he could have really reshaped some of the discourse if they had taken up the challenge to talk about some of these issues around refugees, around tax, around um, uh, workers' rights, uh, all those sort of... And all those things, I think, could have been reshaped if they had the courage to actually go out and challenge some of the norms, and they didn't. And that, I think, is really 
today, we still... I look back and I think that's just a huge opportunity and we may not get it for a while, get another opportunity like that for some time. Well, it's interesting because uh, they go to Paris. Uh, they are told that uh, basically investing in fossil fuel is a dead duck. But we are, uh, this government is heavily invested in fossil fuel. They've allowed the Carmichael mine to go ahead. And they're also kowtowing to their mates around the world. And in relation to making Australia a dump for nuclear waste. And uh, the first, we'll have a note that a couple of weeks ago was the first arrival of uh, nuclear waste at Port Kembla, which was right. not actually very wa- widely proclaimed on our mainstream media. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm yet to see any evidence that, that any government is taking climate change seriously, including our own. I, I don't think pa- Paris, for me, you know, these sort of huge conferences uh, don't, uh, don't, haven't really translated into anything positive yet. And, you know, as long as we have an uh, economic system that's driven by the notion of growth, I- infinite growth, or, uh, then we're never going to deal with, um, with climate change properly. I mean, we live, in, we live in an economic system which is all about consumption. And consumption is a direct challenge to, to sustainability and to um, the longevity of the Earth, the, the ecological longevity of the earth is i mean those things are in conflict so until we start talking about how we actually reduce our consumption um then we're not really going to deal with climate change and we're not going to deal with any of the major economic environmental or economic issues that the world faces we need to have a deep philosophical discussion about how we as humans live on this planet before we can deal with climate change I was not talk about ETSs or <laughs> uh, taxes or we need to have a... Or do, commodifying you know, pollution. Or, yeah, I mean, we need to do what David Suzuki says. We need to think reflectively about how we live. Yeah, I, I think as well, Naomi Klein's book um, on, you know, This Changes mm. Everything is probably a... It's, it's interesting because a lot of people have read it and I think it is quite good for setting the discussion. Um, Indeed. I... Yeah had a bit of a I was interested in the I suppose imperialist politics behind some of the Paris climate change talks because yeah. it appears that India is being more amenable to the West than you would have imagined giving its uh, given its alliance with the BRICS and I was wondering whether yeah. you think that India is trying to pivot and why that might be well it's it um, Indian the Indian government is a right-wing government it's a Hindu nationalist party um, it's uh, a proto-fascist in my view, just speaking to people who know Indian politics better than I do. Um, it's, uh, so I, I could see it aligning with... And it's, and it's heavily, uh, directly heavily uh, linked to big business and to interests of the richest, uh, very small, rich, uh, richest group in India. So it reflects the, the politics of that real reactionary uh, economic and social politics. So I can see it aligning itself with imperial politics and being a actually a, I see it as a creature of that of that uh, of that imperial politics. In fact, and so that's probably one reason why it's lurched. I mean, one of the things about the BRICS is that it has, you know, effectively it it has effectively in some case, in some places, especially in South America and Africa, offered an alternative to the IMF um, 
you know, sort of neoliberal project. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still an exploitative, the BRICS are still exploitative of um, weaker economies. There's no doubt that China's uh, sort of politic or, or economic and political um, intrusion into places like Africa and Latin America and the Pacific is all about accumulation. So I'm not trying to romanticise what they're doing, but it's a different model than what the IMF and the World Bank has, has um, imposed over the last 30 or 40 years. And it is a cha- direct challenge to it. And I think that's scaring. Uh, that does scare the um, the, the uh, Wall Street and the sort of uh, uh, class that's linked to, or the, the sort of ruling class that's linked linked to that um, IMF World Bank uh, project. Um, and that's probably why India is such a useful player, because it's breaking ranks with that um, approach. Now, so, uh, we'll have I to come to an end to, of this discussion now, Noah, because we're oh, cut right at the line. Yeah, what a yes. shame. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but uh, it uh, leads us into uh, uh, lots of thoughts to lead into 2016. Thank you very much. There is, I mean, next year will be another interesting year, interesting, challenging, uh, sometimes quite uh, uh, confronting year in a whole range of places. So, um, you know, if if possible, we'll continue this conversation uh, sometime in the new year. Wonderful. Thank you, Noah. Have a happy uh, season. Same to you, Annie, and to you, Kim, as well. All the best for the uh, the holidays. And I hope to speak to you fresh and uh, re-energised in 2016. Yes, hopefully. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was Noah Basil. We uh, talk, talked about public housing. We talked about uh, uh, Corbyn, England, what's yes. going on there. And uh, we're going to sign off and uh, let uh, Asia-Pacific Currents take over. Have a good... Uh, happy, happy holidays. holidays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and make sure you don't boil to death like a lobster. Yes. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.